Well, good morning, Calvary Church. It's good to be here worshiping with you this morning, and also want a special welcome to those watching in various locations, uh, downstairs, around the building here, at home, wherever you may be, across the world. We're glad you're with us this morning. We're continuing our study in 1 Thessalonians this morning, so of course you can turn in your Bibles to chapter 2. But I want to draw our attention to something that relates uh, very directly. Some of you know the Apostle Paul's journeys pretty well, and uh, near the end of his third missionary journey, his last major journey, he holds a meeting, a farewell meeting with a very dear church of his in Ephesus with the elders there, and they are meeting at the city of Miletus. And it's a very emotional passage of Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 20. You can read it on your own sometime. But Paul gives a charge to these elders and also a great blessing to them, and he, he concludes his message with these words. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it reveals Paul's confidence that the welfare of of the church of God in Jesus Christ is in the hands of God. And he trusts God and God's primary means of grace in their lives, his word. And, and the elders at the church of Miletus or the church of Ephesus were to do the same thing. So are we. I mean, this itself is scripture given to us. And the elders, and especially Timothy, who would be responsible for this church, would teach the word to the church. And so God would build up his church and He would bless it for all eternity. Well, this passage before us in 1 Thessalonians that we're going to look at today speaks in a very similar manner, and we're going to to examine it and, uh, and learn from it in the same manner. So, let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank You so much for the gift that You have given to Your church of the Holy Scripture, that it is for our growth and for our ultimate hope, for our maturity, and that by it uh, you keep us who are yours. And we pray this morning that you would guide us as we look into 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and that you would remind us yet again of the value of your word to our lives. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. So you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16 this morning, and we're going to be talking about the word of God at work how the Word of God actually works in the lives of believers. So let me read the text to you this morning. It says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But God's wrath has come upon them at last. So we're to thank God this morning for His working of grace through His Word and even through us as messengers of His Word as we give the Word out to people. And we're going to see this morning that the Word of God creates believers and then it continues to transform them until the final day of glory. 
And so the Apostle Paul and his team here are writing of how the Word of God is at work in two ways. The first way in verse 13 is that the Word of God works growth in receptive believers. The Word of God works growth in receptive believers, verse 13. And then we see a very powerful example in verses 14 through 16 of how the Word works unity among the churches. The Word works unity among the churches. So just to back up a minute and give you context for the Thessalonian letter, um, we've, we've been in it for a few weeks now, but you remember in chapter 1 how the Apostle Paul reminds the Thessalonians of how powerful of a beginning they had as a church. And so we can go back and we can read about that experience in Acts chapter 17 and, and how the Paul talks about how their preaching came with unusual power that time when they were with them for just a few weeks. And how their reception to the Word was amazing. You know, he preached that Jesus is the Savior, that He died on the cross for our sins, that He rose from the dead for our justification, and that we can be saved by putting our faith in Him. And they did. And amazingly so. And God transformed these people that they gave up their idols. His power transformed their lives. And they were so eager, they went around sharing the gospel everywhere so that whenever the Paul, Paul traveled, he, he would hear about his own story before he could get it out of his own mouth because of what God did at that church. And then, so in chap, that's chapter 1. In chapters 2 and 3, Apostle Paul and his team are talking about the way they lived their lives while they were with the Thessalonians, even for just a short period of time, a matter of weeks, up to maybe a couple months. And his pastoral heart really comes out for the people here. And he's also responding to what's going on in the background. And in the background, the smear campaign is going on because he was chased out of town, uh, by nasty people. They didn't like him transforming his uh, community, their community with the gospel. And so they start to talk and smear the apostle and his team. And so he writes about and reminds the Thessalonians to keep believing, don't believe the lies, because you know our integrity, you know how we were with you, and tries to relieve their anxiety. And so last Sunday, we looked at the defense of their ministry in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and we noted that the Apostle Paul wasn't really trying to vindicate himself in front of the Thessalonians. They already knew who he really was. But to encourage them to keep believing the gospel and don't succumb to the smear campaign, to the liars, to the deception that's out there. And we learned from him in chapter 2 earlier that he set before us these three illustrations, three ways, three examples really of how we should minister the gospel, how we should conduct ourselves. And the first one is that we're entrusted messengers, entrusted with the gospel, and so we need to be responsible to share that. We're also supposed to be gentle as giving mothers, newborn Christians, to be gentle with them, and then to be encouraging uh, like fathers and to be earnest with them that they would excel still more in their faith. Well, today, we're going to learn how the Word of God actually works in people. And so we're going to see that the gospel of God is what actually creates believers, and then it continues to transform them until they achieve and reach eternal glory. So let's look at verse 13, and we'll see how the Word of God works growth in receptive believers, to read it to you again. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God which is at work in you believers. So here we see Paul and the team again constantly thanking God for the reception of the Word. It's like the second Thanksgiving section in the book. 
You remember in chapter 1, that's how it begins as many of the letters. They thanked God at the beginning of the letter that He had chosen them for salvation and that He had started working His graces of faith, love, and hope within them. And so part of this evidence that the Paul gave for that was how he worked in the preachers themselves, in himself and his team, that they experienced this unusual conviction and power of the Holy Spirit as they proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ. For he said in chapter 1, verse 5, our gospel didn't come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So now he's thanking God again for something else. He's thanking God for how God worked receptivity in the Thessalonians. And so he, of course, commends them and encourages them in this disposition, but he, he's thanking God for both ends, if you will. He's thanking God for the power in which they were able to proclaim the gospel, and he's thanking God for how he worked receptivity in the hearers so that the Thessalonians actually responded to the gospel. This is a really good question to think about for a moment. Who do you thank for people being receptive to the gospel? Do you thank the people for being receptive? Or do you thank God for producing the receptivity? And so we see here that the Apostle Paul directly thanks God for that. St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, wrote in his commentary, why does he give thanks to here to God? Certainly it would be vain and meaningless if the person to whom he gives thanks for something is not the person who did it. But since this is not vain and meaningless, then certainly God to whom he gives thanks for this work is the one who brought it about that the Thessalonians, that when they had received from the apostles the word by hearing it, received it not as the word of men, but as it truly is, as the word of God. That's who works receptivity in our hearers. It's God himself working both sides, in the preachers and in the receivers of the message. And it's the same with us as we think about Scripture and we think about talking to people about the Word of God, the Bible. And, you know, and, and they, you know, the Apostle Paul, when he was there, he reasoned from the Scriptures with them. He appealed to their intellect as well as their commitments and their emotions. But, you know, you can study the Word of God with people. You can lay out proofs that the, that the Scriptures really are the Word of God to people. They can study them. They can see that the Scriptures actually inspire people, that they produce results in people all this persuasion that we can bring to bear on someone. But only the Spirit of God can convince someone in their soul that the Scriptures they're reading are the actual very words of God. He is the one who brings in the final conviction and persuasion. You see, here's another mark of of a true believer and of those believers who continue to grow in the grace of God is how they receive the Word of God as from God Himself. It's not just a bunch of human words. The Thessalonians, upon receiving the gospel and the teaching that all surrounded it, they truly accepted it in faith for what it really was, God's blessing. Everything that they've been explaining. How about you? How have you received the Scriptures as the very Word of God? How do you continue to receive them? How do you observe people receiving them when you speak about the Scriptures and as they study them and as they read them and comment on them? I mean, be wise in what you observe and pray to God that He would actually open their hearts to really truly accept the Word of God as it really is. 
The Thessalonians here received the prophetic word through the apostles, and so they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God, and they started to bear fruit right away. Faith and love and hope. And the transforming power of the word is itself authentication of its divine origin. It produces a reverence for God and obedience to God, as well as things like faith and love and hope and peace and joy, and you know the list goes on. God used His Word to create life in these people in Thessalonica and, and to further embrace His Word so that they can further be transformed. And this is what the Word of God does. It's at work in them, it says in verse 13. The Word of God transforms us because it's at work in our hearts and our minds and our souls. God has chosen to reveal Himself through His Word and to continually work through His Word as written Scripture and as those who faithfully represent the Scriptures. You see, once the Word of God is received with faith, it actually becomes even more powerful in them, in their lives. It bears fruit. It renews the inner being of the person. It gives us a true knowledge of God, not our ideas about God. And it actually moves us to serve the Lord. This is one of the first signs you will see in a new believer, is they will have such a hunger for this book that they can't put it down. That's how you know spiritual life exists. So I want to remind us this morning of some passages from the New Testament. You know them well, and of course there are many more. And of course there are tons of them in the Old Testament about the Word of God at work and how God's Word accomplishes things, especially the Psalms. But here are a few for you to jot down. Remember Luke eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and do it. Luke eleven twenty eight. Acts twenty thirty two, I already read this one, and I commend you to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Acts twenty thirty two. Second Timothy three, fifteen and sixteen. From childhood, you've known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. James 1.21, therefore putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You see, the word of God creates the church and it sustains the church. The church is dependent upon the word of God. And attentiveness to scripture is what's going to determine the healthiness of a church, and the healthiness of a Christian. How's the Word of God at work performing its work in you who believe, performing its work in you personally? How is it performing its work among those people in your small group, 
amongst the ministries or through the ministries that you're performing? How is the Word of God at work? What have you seen lately? Surely you have some stories to share. So be receptive, of course. Be encouraged. The gospel is what creates believers. Speak the Scripture to people. And then understand that it's the Word that's going to continue to cause growth and to transform believers and to cause them to love and to find their hope in Jesus Christ more and more. Our confidence is in God's Word to do His work in the new believer and in ourselves and in other people. So that's the setup. But notice in verse 14, it begins, For you, brothers. So verse 13 is really the introduction, and so now he's going to show one major area of transformation, the Word of God at work among the Thessalonians. You know, one of the greatest sins that can take place in a church is disunity. The early church wrote extensively and preached extensively against disunity. So there's really then, you could say, almost no greater grace that God can give to a group of people who believe in Him than unity. It's one of the greatest blessings. And that's what we see what the Word of God does in this church. Immediately, it brings unity among the churches because it bonds them together in suffering. We have a common faith and a common mission that we're to accomplish as churches of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And then we'll see in verses 15 to 16 that as the Word of God incites opposition, it continues to bind us together as a church because the reason we suffer is very simple. It's because we proclaim that Jesus is Lord and He's the only Savior. That's why the church suffers. It's because we proclaim Jesus is Lord. There is no other. And there is no other salvation from sin. And there is no hope for eternity but in Jesus Christ. That's our message. It's a wonderful message, but not everyone loves the message. And so then we read in verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. This suffering brings unity. It's confirmation that the Word of God is at work in them. The efficacy of the gospel, of the Word. The Thessalonian believers had become imitators of the churches that are in God, of God in Christ Jesus in Judea. Now notice that all these churches together are all of God the Father. They're all in Christ Jesus. It speaks to the unity of the churches and their common life in union with the triune God. There's only one church. The book of Ephesians makes this point extensively clear. There is one Spirit, one Lord, one hope, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and it goes on and on. There's one church, and we're all united in Jesus Christ. Now, the churches in Judea here are singled out because they were the first fruits of the gospel. These were the first churches in Judea that were planted, that got started in the regions of Judea, and they were well known because they were expanding rapidly in the midst of hostile opposition. So they had a reputation that preceded them. And what the Apostle Paul is pointing out to the Thessalonians is he's trying to evoke this sense of camaraderie, this, this encouragement with the church there in Thessalonica that they're even unwittingly, in a sense, imitating the churches in Judea. They may have forgotten that. They may not have really thought about that before. 
but in their suffering, and this makes a bond. They suffered in Thessalonica from their own countrymen, their own neighbors and friends and business partners and people in the community. They suffered because the Jews and Gentiles alike in Thessalonica hated the Christians and the church and the preaching of the gospel. Well, it was just like in Judea, the Apostle Paul is saying. That's how it was when it started there, too, and the churches were being started. Their countrymen, primarily Jews, opposed the gospel as well. And, and when we know and we, and we think about the suffering that we experience together as a church throughout the world, we start caring for one another and encourage one another and pray for one another. And, and we stay informed. And we feel like we're one with something larger. You know, there are so many ways that you can stay informed today. I would encourage you to subscribe to some of the sources out there so that you know what's going on in the world around, in the church around the world, the global church. Of course, one of the classic groups is Voice of the Martyrs. So you can sign up for their newsletters. Another one is Open Doors. And I'm sure there are others. And, well, we even have missionaries here at our church that we send out. My guess is they have things to say in their prayer letters. So I hope you've signed up for their prayer letters and you get them and you read them. There's so many ways to say, stay connected to what the Lord is doing around the world. You see, this is, in fact, why Paul sent Timothy back. Remember, they got chased out of the city. They keep going down the peninsula. And Paul sends Timothy back at the first chance he can get to go check on the Thessalonian church. How are they doing? And we read this in chapter 3, verse 3. And reason he sends him back so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we've been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. You see, all true Christians receive the Word of God, they suffer for it, and they endure it with joy. In chapter 1, verse 6, in 1 Thessalonians, it says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They go together. I mean, Jesus taught the same thing, that that the joy in receiving the gospel has to be a true joy from the Holy Spirit. It can't just be some manufactured human joy. In Matthew 13, he said, And on the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. You see, the true disciple will endure by grace and in joy, though it's difficult and might even be horrendous because he knows. He or she knows that, that they have something of greater value, the pearl of great price. The kingdom of God belongs to them. And so our Lord Jesus also blessed us, blessed us who suffer for him, in Matthew 5.10, he says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I say all of this so I hope you feel the bond. The Calvary Church is just not bonded to Calvary Church, to itself, to one another. But we're bonded to the Judean churches from the first century, 
that we're one with the church in Thessalonica. And then when we learn about the church around the world suffering for the gospel of Jesus Christ, we feel a bond with them as well. And when we see it happen or feel it happen to ourselves or to our friends, we realize, yes, we're one because we confess the name of Jesus Christ. And so then we see in verses 15 and 16 that you see the Word of God incites opposition. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that no one else is Lord. When we say that you can have your sins forgiven in Jesus Christ, we're saying there is salvation in no other name. It's a great hope that we give to the world when we proclaim the Word, but it's also one that's going to be responded to with great anger in certain times and certain places. And sometimes you just never know where it's going to come from. And so there are five accusations here in verses 15 and 16 that are leveled against the Jewish people. The Apostle Paul continues, you know, for you have suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as to always fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. So there's these five accusations. We'll go through them briefly together. Now, of course, when you're accusing a large group of people, only the guilty are really guilty. But you see that they're actually being considered as a collective, historical people of God here. But then when you start thinking through the events historically, you start realizing, well, yeah, pretty much everybody's probably guilty here. You think about the historical setting that you read about in the Gospels with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and how few followers there really were and how many wanted him crucified. You think about the Apostle Paul in his current situation as you read the travel log in the book of Acts and how pretty much wherever he goes, oh yeah, people respond to the gospel, but just as many, if not more, are hostile. And you think about his example that he gives of the churches in Judea, even at the time that he's writing to the Thessalonians, they're still enduring persecution. And so these invectives that he, he speaks are reminiscent really of when the persecution broke out big time with the martyrdom speech that Stephen gave in Acts chapter 7. So if you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 7. It's a very long passage. We're not going to read it, but it is an amazing story. So I really encourage you to read it on your own in Acts chapter 7. But we're just going to look at the end starting in verse 51. But you see, Stephen was very powerful in proclaiming the gospel, and God worked powerfully through him and in the people that listened to him. And so he was very successful with the gospel. And so that brought out a riot. And then the council got involved and decided to go after Stephen. And so then we read in his speech, starting in verse 51, Acts 7, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, Jesus Christ, whose betrayers and murderers you have become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. You can see why people don't like him. 
Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and witnesses laid down their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, Paul, the apostle eventually. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him, them. And having said this, he fell asleep, he died. And Saul, or Paul, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. You see, surely the Apostle Paul remembers well his former opposition to the gospel. Being a murderer, complicit in the murder of Stephen, and how he was opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, he's a, the Apostle Paul's a Jew himself. So he now speaks with experience from both sides of the situation, both sides as a persecutor of the church and as an apostle of the church. And as he writes these words in verses 15 and 16, they're written from his experience under the full inspiration of the Holy Spirit, their scripture. And so, he says these five things. He says, they killed the Lord Jesus. Now, his emphasis, notice here, is on that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord. Now, historically, we know that the Jewish leaders were pretty crafty in, you know, pulling in the Romans on the deed. And so, many people are guilty in actually killing Jesus. But, you know, Jesus himself even said this in Matthew 21, 33 and following Jesus spoke about himself and what would happen. He said, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and then went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and they did the same thing. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize the inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He'll bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, Did you never read the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter them like dust. So Jesus said the same thing about what was going to happen to himself. They would kill him as the son. And then second of all, the Apostle Paul writes against these, the Jewish people. Here he's saying, they killed their own prophets, historically. They killed the Old Testament prophets. I mean, Jesus Christ said the same thing. There's nothing new here. He said the very same thing. So in his woes to the Pharisees that Jesus proclaims in Matthew 23, starting in verse 29, he says this, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and you say, if we had been living,' 
in the days of our fathers, well, we wouldn't have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up, then, the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. These would be the apostles and those after them. That upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem and Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you children together as the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So in the same way, following these two examples, the apostles says they killed the Lord Jesus, they killed the prophets, and they drove us out from proclaiming the gospel. They drove out and severely persecuted Paul and his team in recent cities, many other cities. The whole point of this diatribe is to illustrate the Jewish people of God rejecting Yahweh yet again in the Messiah by rejecting now his new messengers. They're not pleasing to God, the fourth point, though they think they are. I mean, the apostle Paul will write later on about this because he used to think the same thing. He used to be on the other side. And so in Romans 10, 1, it's written, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they didn't subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They didn't accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And then number five, they're hostile to all men everywhere because they hinder God's plan. They hinder His word. They hinder His salvation from going out into all the world. They're both unbelieving and jealous at the same time. I mean, you would think, well, they're unbelieving, well, then who cares what those people say? But they're unbelieving and they're jealous at the same time because of the success. They don't like the implications that God's going to incorporate the Gentiles and forsake Israel. You know, Jesus, again, said the exact same things. You know, he had some following him, believing Jews, and, and even some that hint at the extension of the mission and where this is going to be going. In Matthew 23, 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go in both Jews and Gentiles. You see, it was common practice to stop the apostolic preaching to the Gentiles. For example, Paul's very first missionary journey. You can turn in your Bibles to Acts 13, verse 44 and following. But again, this is a great episode, the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. A lot of great stories in there you can read about what happened. But in his first journey, he gets to a city named Antioch in Pisidia. It's about 48 AD or so, so it's just, you know, a few years earlier from when he's writing the Thessalonian letter to the Thessalonians, and he's, he's talking about this experience, so you go back and, and you can read it, but Acts 13, there's a lot in here, but he says, and the next Sabbath day, 
Nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things that were spoken by Paul and blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Quotation from Isaiah 49. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region, but the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off their feet in protest against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So the result of these five activities that they've been involved in leads to the filling up of their sins to the limit, the text says. This is very common biblical language, especially in the Old Testament, of reaching the limit that has been set by divine decree. It's as though they make sure to commit all the sins possible and pile them as high as possible. It's the culmination of a long history where each generation adds to the weight of sin doing their worst. And so, wrath or judgment has come upon the Jewish people finally, or to the uttermost. This too is reminiscent of Jesus' language, Jesus' style, and the way He spoke. God has settled His decision. Judgment now looms, and it's about to fall. And that future is certain. Perhaps there's a few things in the minds of the original recipients of the letter. The famine in the land, the temple massacre that took place not too long ago, Claudius the emperor had just expelled the Jews from Rome. The list goes on, a lot of judgments. You see, the Jewish people, as the people of God, are in a serious situation because of their continuing rejection of the gospel and the Messiah. And there's only going to be a short period of toleration allowed since Jesus coming into the world and his ascension back to glory. The Jewish people at the apostolic era, they were living at the sin threshold. And the imminent closing off of the gospel to the Jews, and it would go primarily to the Gentiles in God's mission. So some refer to this section, verses 15 to 16 in this passage, as Paul's polemic against the Jews and try to charge the Apostle Paul with being an anti-Semite. Some think this is too sharp of a contrast with Romans chapters 9 through 11, for example, where he takes pride in being from a Jewish heritage and he expresses his love for his Jewish brothers and sisters and he extends hope that the gospel will return to them one day. And so some suggest that, oh, well, this section, these verses must have been added later, but there's no textual evidence to support that. Make all the claims you want, but you better have evidence. There isn't any that that's the case, and it's quite unnecessary. In actuality, this present passage is quite easily harmonized with the way the Apostle Paul writes, with the rest of Scripture, the way Jesus spoke. So, first of all, consider that the Apostle Paul 
is not anti-Semitic in practice. I mean, first of all, he is Jewish, and he's proud of it. In Romans 9, he says, I'm telling the truth. In Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bearing witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. And also, when you look at Paul's missionary practice, he gave first priority almost exclusively to the Jews when he would enter into a city. That was his standard procedure. So not all, not, so his practice shows that that is not a fair charge, but also consider the, consider the context in which he's writing this in, in Thessalonians. I mean, think about these very recent events. I mean, what just happened to him in Thessalonica, in Berea, got chased out of there, in Corinth now, where he is when he's writing this, and being severely persecuted by the Jewish people because of his message that Jesus is the Messiah. And consider the past events. I mean, going back to his conversion and the first missionary journey. I already read to you the, the, the travelogue from the Pisidian Antioch and what took place there. Well, you can read the rest on your own. But then you read about what took place in Damascus and what took place in Jerusalem and took place in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. And the list goes on and on. And eventually the Apostle Paul would write about how five times he received 39 lashes from the Jews. Consider the context. He's holding back when he's writing in verses 15 and 16. And third, above all, realize that Paul is speaking in the very tradition of the prophets and, the, and, and Jesus Christ himself. We've already read many statements from Jesus himself. That's why I put them before you this morning, because, I mean, I don't think anyone was accused Jesus of being an anti-Semite. I mean, but this is exactly the way Jesus spoke. It's the way he talked. And you've read the prophets, I'm sure. You can read them. Then how they would talk about that and about how they would be treated. And then fourth, you know, Paul still holds out hope for some, even while he understands that the judgment of hardening is happening until close to the very end. In Romans 11, he'll write, For if their rejection, that is the Jewish people's rejection of the gospel and Jesus of Messiah, be reconciliation for the world, because the gospel goes out, what will their acceptance be? But life from the dead will be the end. He goes on to say, I don't want you to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. See, Paul still proclaimed to the Jews, for example, even in Ephesus. And then at the end of his ministry in Rome, and you read through the whole book of Acts, that's where it ends. And he proclaims to them there. So this is a very solemn passage, certainly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, but it's not an anti-Semitic passage. Not any more so than we could find other texts and call them anti-Gentile texts or figure out what little group of people lived there and say it was against them because of who they were. I mean, certainly the church in its history has some embarrassments in how they misuse Scripture, but not as many as some would suggest today. It's sort of the common false narrative that's spun for you. But the fault of that has to do with fallible human misapplication of the text, an abuse of it to promote their own sinful tendencies. 
But it's not the fault of the text itself. It's God's Word. It's not the fault of the text of God's Word. And most should realize the difference and not be so confused. There's a difference between expressing a theological conviction that is anti-Judaism and expressing a racial prejudice, which is anti-Semitic. Those are two different things. And some people want to conflate them and pretend they can't understand the difference. But we understand the difference. It's just common sense. You see, because the former, the theological conviction is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. I mean, this is the natural outcome of focusing on God's revealed mission and believing that Jesus is the divine Messiah, the eternal Son of God who's become man. And that only those who believe in Him have eternal life. I mean, that's as clear as clear can be. And if you believe that, then everything else is false. All other religious claims. The Apostle John wrote in 1 John 2.22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. And the one who confesses the Son has the Father also. You see, the Word of God worked powerfully among the Thessalonians, not just in the preachers, not just in them as hearers, not just in their acceptance, not just in the transformation of their lives or the evangelism that they were doing, but it worked unity among the churches because it brought persecution and suffering. And we're all in it together. I mean, really remember the main line of the section. It's in verse 14. You became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus because you suffered the same things. Verses 15 and 16, that's just sort of an aside. It's deeply encouraging to know that suffering is a part of living the gospel, especially when you're suffering. And it's a common experience of all true churches and all true Christians. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, of course, it takes on a variety of forms. It can just be as simple as somebody rejecting you. It could also take on the form of somebody abusing you. It could take the form of a verbal attack, an online attack against your personality, a physical attack, many places in the world, even martyrdom. You see, opposition is normal. It's just normal. We shouldn't think of it as abnormal. Peace is abnormal. So if we ask at this task, how is the Word of God at work performing its work in you who believe? Hopefully now we're also asking, how is the Word of God at work building a sense of unity within you with the church around the world and of all ages who desire to live and die together for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I hope that's a part of our passion here at Calvary Evangelical Free Church. The gospel of God creates believers and then it continues to transform them all for eternal glory because that's the purpose of suffering. You know, God is still at work with His Word in the world. He's still creating believers with His gospel, with the Scriptures as they're explained to people. And He continues to transform His people around the world using the very same words, the Word of God, to do it. The Word of God is living and powerful because it's from God. The Scriptures are one of His greatest gifts to the church. The Word of God produces tremendous results and those people who receive it with faith. It brings a true knowledge of God. 
so you don't have to grope in the dark trying to figure out who God is. He tells you who He is. The Scriptures maintain our spiritual life. It's not in the latest fad or spirituality trick or something that we're trying to pull in. The Scriptures sustain our spiritual life. And they give us a knowledge of His will. It's not usually that complicated to know how to walk in God's will. The Scriptures keep us there. That's how the Word of God works in us. So think through this week how the Word of God has been at work in you personally and the stories that you might tell others, how you've seen God at work through His Word at Calvary and the stories that you could tell. Again, the main part of this passage and the focus is verses 13 and 14, which is if you want to grow, really simply, bottom line, if you want to grow in your salvation, then be receptive to the Word of God. You know, if you want to feel more of the unity that we have as the global church of Jesus Christ, be receptive to the Word of God. Do you need to make some renewed commitments, perhaps, regarding your receptivity to the Word of God today? Um, you know, after the service, we always have a little time where you can come forward for some prayer, and there'll be people up here that would be glad to pray with you this morning. Maybe you need to join a Bible study. You know, we do have Bible studies. Some meet virtually, some meet in person. There are small groups that you can be a part of, and you can open yourself up to the Word of God and receive it. So I hope you're strengthened and renewed in your love for the Word of God, your Bible. That's really it. Boil it all down. That's everything this morning. Love the Scriptures. Acts 20, 32 says, I commend you to God and to the Word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So may we constantly be people who give thanks to God for His work in us through His Word. Let me pray for us. God, our Father, we thank You so much for Your love for us in Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we adore You who You came from eternal glory with Your Father to be, undergo humiliation, to become one of us, to live the perfect righteous life that we could not live, and to offer yourself up as the perfect and complete sacrifice for our sins and to give us the righteousness that you earned. We thank you for this gospel of life, this gospel of grace. And we thank you, God, for your word that you have preserved over the centuries to bless your church, to cause us to grow, and to continue to be able to be spoken so that your church can expand, that new people can come to faith, and that they can grow as well. And so we ask that you would constantly be working in us as your people here and that we would see more and more of what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.